0: This is Space Time, Series 26, Episode 49, for broadcast on the 24th of April, 2023. Coming up on Space Time, the first Starship launch ends in a massive explosion, Europe's JUICE mission blasts off-bound for the Jovian system, and Russia backs down on its space station threat. All that and more coming up on Space Time.
1: Welcome to Spacetime with Stuart Gary.
0: The world's largest and most powerful rocket has exploded in mid-air in the skies above Texas during its maiden test flight. SpaceX's massive 120 meter tall Starship thundered off its launch pad, blasting off with twice the power of NASA's new Artemis SLS moon rocket.
2: Chamber pressure is nominal. 2 plus 33 seconds into the test flight of the inaugural Starship vehicle. Tower clear to end a pitch over. Propulsion reports first stage engines nominal. What a sight from the ground cameras tower. at to nominal yes. We're on. flying at twice the thrust of the Saturn V heading to space.
0: The gleaming stainless steel launch vehicle reflected the Texas morning sun as it rose effortlessly from SpaceX's starbase at Boca Chica on the Gulf of Mexico coast, climbing high into the blue Texas sky on what looked like a golden pillar of fire and smoke. Starship passed through Max-Q, the point of maximum dynamic pressure on the spacecraft nominally.
2: We're throttled down and throttled back up, going through the period of maximum aerodynamic pressure. As the velocity increases, the density of the atmosphere is decreasing, lessening stress on the vehicle. The call-out, Max-Q now. Continuing to watch the first stage as we head downrange. 100 seconds into flight, our next major activity is going to be our shutdown position, of the first stage. Houston Tracking Station now acquiring the vehicle.
0: However, just four minutes into the mission, as the 5,000-ton monster climbed through 39 kilometers, it became clear that a number of the 33 Raptor first-stage rocket engines had shut down unexpectedly. The flight plan called for the booster stage to peel away from the Starship upper stage following main engine cutoff for Miko and stage separation. However, instead, the two stages remained connected as the stack began to tumble out of control and plummet back towards the Earth.
2: When Starship separates, we light up six engines in a staggered sequence. If all goes well, those six engines will burn for almost six and a half minutes. Now after stage separation, the first stage will flip and begin a boost back maneuver for landing in the Gulf. Continuing to fly, 2 minutes 40 seconds,
3: let's get ready for main engine cutoff. Booster engine cutoff. As of right now, we are awaiting stage separation, where Starship should separate from the Super Heavy booster.
2: The entire Starship stack continuing to rotate. We should have had separation by now. Obviously, this is uh, does not appear to be a nominal
3: situation.
0: That forced mission managers to issue a self-destruct order, blowing up the spacecraft in a massive explosion.
3: I do want to remind everyone that everything after clearing the tower was icing on the cake. As we said before, obviously, we wanted to make it all the way through, but to get this far, honestly, is amazing.
2: <laughs> Starship just experienced what we call a rapid unscheduled disassembly or a RUD, during ascent. But now this was a development test, this is the first test flight of Starship and the goal was to gather the data and as we said clear the pad and get ready to go again. So you never know exactly what's going to happen but as we promised excitement is guaranteed and Starship gave us a rather spectacular end what was truly an incredible test thus far. Any and all the data that we collected during the test is gonna help us with further development of Starship, and it's gonna improve the vehicle's reliability as SpaceX seeks to make life multiplanetary. It's really worth noting that the flight path was designed to be over water and all the air and sea space, along with that flight path and those surrounding areas were cleared in advance of the test. And of course, we're gonna be coordinating with local authorities for the recovery operations.
3: We had a successful liftoff from Starbase, Texas at 8.28 a.m. Central Time. Uh, We cleared the tower, which honestly, was our only hope. We cleared the tower, and all the data that we collected all the way through, we got all that data, and uh, no, uh, we got so far as to hoping to see the the Starship, the second stage, separate from the first stage, the super heavy booster. And unfortunately, we didn't make that happen, but that's OK. It was the first integrated launch, um, and honestly, today was amazing. Uh,
2: we made it through a number of those initial uh, test objectives, with getting booster ascent, getting all the way through the countdown, working some issues at the end, like really fantastic day. Got through the gate (laughs) at T-minus 40 seconds on the second try. Everything released, the hold downs, quick disconnect arms, everything moves out of the way. And then we got the vehicle off of the pad, through max Q, all the way up to stage separation, even starting into the prep for stage stuff. And then, as we say, a lot of excitement.
0: The launch vehicle for this test flight included Starship Prototype 24 and Super Heavy Booster 7. These were the same two stages that had successfully performed static fire tests on the launch pad earlier in the year. The orbital test flight was meant to see the Super Heavy Booster carry Starship to an altitude of 65 kilometres. Following main engine cutoff and stage separation, the booster should have returned to Earth, splashing down off the Texas coast in the Gulf of Mexico. However, the ultimate plan will see the super heavy undertake an orientation flip and boost backburn, guided by nitrogen jets and aerodynamic fins back towards the launch site. Then a re-entry burn would have slowed the Super Heavy down to a controlled descent before a landing burn would see the booster touch down vertically on the launch pad caught and secured in place by a pair of mechanical arms. Meanwhile, for this test run, the Starship Upper Stage was meant to complete a full orbit of the planet before re-entering the atmosphere and splashing down in the Pacific Ocean off the Hawaiian coast. Eventually, the Starships would land vertically back on the ground. The 120-ton, 50-meter-tall starship is 9 meters in diameter and constructed out of stainless steel. The reusable spacecraft is powered by six liquid methane and oxygen-fueled Raptor rocket engines, three configured for atmospheric operations, the other three for the vacuum of space. Starship's 70-metre-long, 9-metre-diameter, 230-ton super-heavy booster, also constructed out of stainless steel, is equipped with 33 Raptor atmospheric engines. Starship isn't just a way of getting into space. Musk sees Starship as an interplanetary colonial transport system designed to establish and supply human settlements on the Moon, Mars, and eventually across the entire solar system. Starship is fully equipped with a belly heat shield, its own retractable vertical landing gear, and it can be refuelled in space using unmanned versions of Starship. Another version would be equipped with a large payload bay, designed for the deployment of satellites. Further in the future, Starship could also be used for point-to-point flights around the Earth, allowing you to reach any destination in under 90 minutes. The entire system is designed to be fully reusable. Starship's first mission for NASA will be to provide the Starship Human Landing System, or HLS. It's a reusable shuttle for NASA to transport people and up to 100 tons of cargo between the lunar surface and orbiting Orion capsules, and later the Lunar Gateway space station. SpaceX also plans on eventually using Starship to replace the company's existing Dragon spacecraft, as well as its Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy launch systems. SpaceX boss Elon Musk says investigations are already underway to determine what went wrong with his first test flight, and he expects a quick turnaround with preparations already underway for another launch attempt. This is Space Time. Still to come, Europe's JUICE mission blasts off bound for the Jovian system, and Russia backs down on its threat to leave the International Space Station. All that and more still to come on space time. The European Space Agency's Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer or JUICE mission has successfully blasted into space on a 10-year journey to the Jovian system. When it arrives in 2031, JUICE will study the gas giant, focusing on its three big icy moons, Europa, Callisto and Ganymede, each of which are thought to contain more water than all the Earth's oceans combined. The mission will determine whether these icy moons are capable of hosting extraterrestrial life in their vast subsurface oceans. The 6070 kg spacecraft was launched aboard an Ariane 5 rocket from the European Space Agency's Kourou spaceport in French Guiana. A launch attempt the previous day had been called off due to the risk of lightning.
3: Six, five, four,
4: three, two, one, top. Allumage Allumage AP. Décollage. La propulsion est nominale. In Kourou, there are many places from which to, uh, to watch these launches. Rafael, it, it's an amazing sensation for you as well, I'm sure. Yeah, even
0: with the clouds, it's just...
3: La trajectoire nominal, nominale. Tous les paramètres bord sont nominaux.
0: It's really, really always impressive and it's an emotion to, to see it. This was the second last launch for the Ariane 5. Before its replacement, the next generation Ariane 6 takes over. Half an hour after liftoff, at an altitude of 1,500 kilometres, the probe separated from its launch vehicle and began its journey into deep space. Juice will take a long and winding path to reach the solar system's largest planet, which is some 628 million kilometres from Earth it'll use several gravitational assists along the way. The first by doing a flyby of the Earth and the Moon, then by slingshotting around Venus in 2025, before swinging past the Earth again in 2029. The 1.6 billion euro mission marks the first time that Europa sent a spacecraft into the outer solar system beyond Mars. When the probe finally enters Jovian orbit in 2031, its 10 scientific instruments will analyse the solar system's king of planets, as well as its three largest moons, Callisto, Europa and Ganymede. The three ice moons, together with the volcanic inner moon Io, were first discovered by astronomer Galileo Galilei more than 400 years ago, but they were long ignored as potential candidates for hosting life. However, the discovery of huge oceans of liquid water, the main ingredient for life as we know it, kilometres beneath their icy crusts, has made Ganymede and Europa prime candidates to potentially host life in our celestial backyard. In 2034, JUICE will slide into orbit around Ganymede, the first time a spacecraft has done so around a moon other than the Earth's. Ganymede's the solar system's largest moon, and the only one with its own magnetic field, which protects it from radiation. NASA's Europa Clipper mission, which is scheduled to launch in October 2024, will focus on Ganymede's sibling, Europa. This report from ESA-TV.
4: The giant planet Jupiter is a place of intrigue and mystery a special environment within our own solar system. When Galileo first raised his telescope to the planet, he discovered four moons, Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto. Early space probes raised more questions than answers about this fascinating gas giant planet and its intriguing moons. Those answers are within our grasp. The Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer, JUICE. JUICE is equipped with the most powerful science payload ever sent to the outer solar system. 10 instruments will conduct the most comprehensive remote sensing, geophysical, and in situ measurements ever performed at Jupiter. To bring JUICE to life, ESA has led a consortium of more than 2,000 people in 23 countries working in 18 institutions and 83 companies. NASA, the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency and the Israel Space Agency have all supplied hardware. For eight years, JUICE will cruise through space before beginning a complex series of manoeuvres in the Jupiter system. During this time, JUICE will face many dangers. Radiation near Jupiter can fry the spacecraft's electronic brain. The planet's gravitational pull is so large, it could threaten derailment. Nevertheless, ESA's expert spacecraft operators will guide JUICE through 35 flybys of Europa, Ganymede and Callisto before orbiting Ganymede. But the dangers will be worth it for the science that JUICE will uncover. Europa and Ganymede are thought to contain subsurface oceans that could hold more water than Earth's oceans. Juice will explore these moons to study whether life could arise in different environments across the cosmos. Juice will also study Jupiter's complex weather, chemistry, and climate in detail. It will turn Jupiter into a standard reference for us to compare against other gas giant planets throughout the cosmos.
0: This space time. Still to come. Russia backs down on its threat to leave the International Space Station and later in the science report, a new study shows the cost of transition to renewable energies will cost Australia trillions of dollars. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Russia says it will now continue working on the International Space Station until at least 2028. The move is a reversal of the announcement back in July last year, when Moscow claimed it would be leaving the orbiting outpost next year in order to set up its own space station. That threat was made in the wake of the growing rift over the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The International Space Station's other partners, the United States, Europe, Canada and Japan, plan to keep the space station flying until 2030. Last year, the Russian Federal Space Agency at OzCosmos claimed maintenance was becoming a problem for the Russian ISS modules, some of which are nearly 25 years old. Air leaks and equipment failures have become a constant problem in the Russian segment of the space station. Russia claimed construction was already underway at RSC Energia on a core module for the planned new Russian Orbital Space Station, or ROS. Russian state media suggested it would be launched around 2025 or 2026, and it would include an initial four modules. Speculation also centered on the new space station's orbit. It may be placed in an orbit of 51.6 degrees, which is similar to that of the ISS, or it could be in a near-polar orbit of 97 degrees, which would be more favourable for Russian launch sites. And unlike the ISS, it may not be manned full-time, but only visited by cosmonauts a couple of times a year. However, despite all the early bluster, talk of the project is going completely silent in recent months. Moscow has, however, struck an agreement with Beijing to partner in a new Chinese lunar space station, which will be built sometime around 2028. We'll keep you informed. This is Space Time. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making use in science this week with a science report. A new study warns that the cost of transition to renewable energy will cost Australians not millions or billions, but trillions of dollars. The dramatic increase in cost was forecast in a new study by top research institutions, including the universities of Melbourne, Queensland and Princeton in the United States. It follows on from a 2017 CSIRO report which warned that transition to renewables would cost Australian taxpayers at least a trillion dollars. The new study found Australia's biggest power grid on the East Coast would need to be tripled in size within eight years. That's if we hope to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050. The new research also found the amount of gas-fired generation capacity would need to be doubled in size in order to keep the lights on. The authors say to achieve the targets, there would need to be a far more rapid rollout of renewable energy, transmission lines, storage facilities such as batteries, electric vehicles and heat pumps in homes and businesses. One of the study's authors, Professor Michael Breer, Director of the Melbourne Energy Institute at the University of Melbourne, says the scale of the job ahead defied easy comprehension. Bria says gas-fired electricity will play a limited but crucial role in keeping the power system stable while the transition to renewable energy goes on. A new report claims now might be the time to stop mandating masks in healthcare settings. Healthcare care experts writing in the journal Annals of Internal Medicine say the burden of SARS-CoV-2 has been mitigated by testing, population-level immunity, less virulence of current variants, and widespread availability of vaccines and treatments. The report says the time has come to manage COVID-19 in the same way as other endemic respiratory viruses, using correct and consistent application of standard and transmission-based precautions. These include healthcare personnel's ongoing use of masks and eye protection when engaging in activities that generate splashes or sprays in the face, regardless of patient symptoms, and the masking of patients when symptoms are present. Almost 6.9 million people have now been killed by the COVID-19 coronavirus since it was first detected near Wuhan's Institute of Virology around September 2019. The World Health Organization estimates the true death toll is likely to be around 16 million, with some 686 million confirmed cases globally. Meanwhile, a new study claims COVID-19 infection is associated with a higher risk of developing diabetes. The findings, reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association, are based on research involving a cohort of over 600,000 people. Scientists used COVID-19 surveillance studies in Canada to compare rates of previously healthy people being diagnosed with diabetes among those who both had and hadn't tested positive for COVID-19. They say the rate of new diabetes diagnoses was 672.2 per 100,000 people for those exposed to COVID-19, as opposed to 508.7 people per 100,000 for those who hadn't been exposed the authors calculated about a 3-5% to excess burden of diabetes at a population level that could have been influenced by COVID-19. And while we're on the subject, a new study has shown that even longer, higher doses of ivermectin will still be useless in treating COVID-19, regardless of what the conspiracy theorists tell you. The findings, reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association, are the latest in a long line of clinical trials showing that ivermectin, which is best used as a horse dewormer, does not affect COVID-19. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics says it's the latest in a string of scientific research, all showing the same conclusion.
1: Ivermectin is a treatment for parasites. And initially, it was a treatment for parasites and horses, mainly worms. But it also has a use with humans. We can use it to treat infestations, right? You're talking about things that are not nice on you. Head lice, scabies, lymphatic filariasis. Sorry, I can't even pronounce that. Are various things that can be treated on humans with ivermectin. Fair enough. But it's nothing to indicate that it can treat viruses. And that's what COVID is. It's a virus. So it's infestations and parasites and things, not a virus. There have been various tests done to suggest, certainly since COVID appeared, that it could be used to treat COVID. And the initial tests to prove it were extremely shonky and dodgy and used evidence that might not have even ever been uh, found or might have been created evidence, if you like. Um, and then it's gone on and on and on, being promoted. And people have done tests and said, how oh, I many times have we got to do these tests? But it's still being promoted, especially by the anti-vaccine people, including you know, politicians in Australia and all over the place, claiming that ivermectin has worked. So people say, okay, let's see if it's worked. And they've done various tests and a um, lot of the tests are of small bunches of people, etc. Well, this was a big test done fairly recently, reported only I think in February in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which did a study of about I think it was twelve hundred people. Decent sized tests who had COVID, right? During February twenty two to july twenty two. And what they did was they studied them and they gave a certain number of Ivermectin treatment and a certain number of placebos. And what they found was that looking at uh, hospitalization, medical emergency department care or death and that came up to 57 of the people with ivermectin and 6% of the people with placebo. So basically no difference between the people taking ivermectin and the people taking nothing, right? Or a placebo, a sugar pill, whatever. They found that the median time for the sustained recovery, how long it would take you to get over it, was 11 days for the people in the ivermectin group and 11 days in the placebo group. So absolutely no evidence that it takes COVID away faster. But they didn't have ribs t- anymore. <laughs> Maybe they did <laughs> So it's, it's not effective, it's not faster, it's persistent placebo and this was quite a decent test but now it's also being used to ivermectin for flu and RSV which is a condition I can't pronounce
0: The results also match other Cochrane studies as well, don't they?
1: There are Cochrane studies which have looked at meta-studies which have looked at, they they amalgamate all different sorts of studies and say what have we found across all the board and they found the same thing but that there is no evidence that ivermectin does anything that won't stop people claiming it because a lot of the people who are claiming it are just anti-vaccine and trying to find something to beat the vaccine people over the head
0: That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics, and that's the show for now.